section sixty two of english literature by william j long this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter eleven continued matthew arnold eighteen twenty two eighteen eighty eight in the world of literature arnold has occupied for many years an authoritative position as critic and teacher similar to that held by ruskin in the world of art in his literary work two very different moods are manifest in his poetry he reflects the doubt of an age which witnessed the conflict between science and revealed religion apparently he never passed through any such decisive personal struggle as is recorded in sartor resartus and he has no positive conviction such as is voiced in the everlasting yea he is beset by doubts which he never settles and his poems generally express sorrow or regret or resignation in his prose he shows the cavalier spirit aggressive light-hearted self-confident like carlyle he dislikes shams and protests against what he calls the barbarisms of society but he writes with a light touch using satire and banter as the better part of his argument carlyle denounces with the zeal of a hebrew prophet and lets you know that you are hopelessly lost if you reject his message arnold is more like the cultivated greek his voice is soft his speech suave but he leaves the impression if you happen to differ with him that you must be deficient in culture both these men so different in spirit and methods confronted the same problems sought the same ends and were dominated by the same moral sincerity life arnold was born in laleham in the valley of the thames in eighteen twenty two his father was dr thomas arnold headmaster of rugby with whom many of us have grown familiar by reading tom brown's school days after fitting for the university at winchester and at rugby arnold entered balliol college oxford where he was distinguished by winning prizes in poetry and by general excellence in the classics more than any other poet arnold reflects the spirit of his university the scholar gypsy and thyrsus contain many references to oxford and the surrounding country but they are more noticeable for their spirit of aloofness as if oxford men were too much occupied with classic dreams and ideals to concern themselves with the practical affairs of life after leaving the university arnold first taught the classics at rugby then in eighteen forty seven he became private secretary to lord lansdowne who appointed the young poet to the position of inspector of schools under the government in this position arnold worked patiently for the next thirty-five years traveling about the country examining teachers and correcting endless examination papers for ten years eighteen fifty seven eighteen sixty seven he was professor of poetry at oxford where his famous lectures on translating homer were given he made numerous reports on english and foreign schools and was three times sent abroad to study educational methods on the continent from this it will be seen that arnold led a busy often a laborious life and we can appreciate his statement that all his best literary work was done late at night after a day of drudgery 
it is well to remember that while carlyle was preaching about labor arnold labored daily that his work was cheerfully and patiently done and that after the day's work he hurried away like lamb to the elysian fields of literature he was happily married loved his home and especially loved children was free from all bitterness and envy and notwithstanding his cold manner was at heart sincere generous and true we shall appreciate his work better if we can see the man himself behind all that he has written arnold's literary work divides itself into three periods which we may call the poetical the critical and the practical he had written poetry since his school days and his first volume the strayed reveller and other poems appeared anonymously in eighteen forty nine three years later he published empedocles on etna and other poems but only a few copies of these volumes were sold and presently both were withdrawn from circulation in eighteen fifty three eighteen fifty five he published his signed poems and twelve years later appeared his last volume of poetry compared with the early work of tennyson these works met with little favor and arnold practically abandoned poetry in favor of critical writing the chief works of his critical period are the lectures on translating homer eighteen sixty one and the two volumes of essays in criticism eighteen sixty five eighteen eighty eight which made arnold one of the best-known literary men in england then like ruskin he turned to practical questions and his friendship's garland eighteen seventy one was intended to satirize and perhaps reform the great middle class of england whom he called the philistines culture and anarchy the most characteristic work of his practical period appeared in eighteen sixty nine these were followed by four books on religious subjects st paul and protestantism eighteen seventy literature and dogma eighteen seventy three god and the bible eighteen seventy five and last essays on church and religion eighteen seventy seven the discourses in america eighteen eighty five completes the list of his important works at the height of his fame and influence he died suddenly in eighteen eighty eight and was buried in the churchyard at laleham the spirit of his whole life is well expressed in a few lines of one of his own early sonnets one lesson nature let me learn of thee one lesson which in every wind is blown one lesson of two duties kept at one though the loud world proclaim their enmity of toil unsevered from tranquillity of labor that in lasting fruit outgrows far noisier schemes accomplished in repose too great for haste too high for rivalry his poetry works of matthew arnold we shall better appreciate arnold's poetry if we remember two things first he had been taught in his home a simple and devout faith in revealed religion and in college he was thrown into a world of doubt and questioning he faced these doubts honestly reverently in his heart longing to accept the faith of his fathers but in his head demanding proof and scientific exactness 
the same struggle between head and heart between reason and intuition goes on today and that is one reason why arnold's poetry which wavers on the borderland between doubt and faith is a favorite with many readers second arnold as shown in his essay on the study of poetry regarded poetry as a criticism of life under the conditions fixed for such criticism by the laws of poetic truth and poetic beauty naturally one who regards poetry as a criticism will write very differently from one who regards poetry as the natural language of the soul he will write for the head rather than for the heart and will be cold and critical rather than enthusiastic according to arnold each poem should be a unit and he protested against the tendency of english poets to use brilliant phrases and figures of speech which only detract attention from the poem as a whole for his models he went to greek poetry which he regarded as the only sure guidance to what is sound and true in poetical art arnold is however more indebted than he thinks to english masters especially to wordsworth and milton whose influence is noticeable in a large part of his poetry of arnold's narrative poems the two best known are balder dead eighteen fifty five an incursion into the field of norse mythology which is suggestive of gray and sorab and rustum eighteen fifty three which takes us into the field of legendary persian history the theme of the latter poem is taken from the shah nama book of kings of the persian poet firdausi who lived and wrote in the eleventh century sorab and rustum briefly the story is one of rustem or rustum a persian achilles who fell asleep one day when he had grown weary of hunting while he slept a band of robbers stole his favorite horse ruksh in trailing the robbers rustum came to the palace of the king of samangan where he was royally welcomed and where he fell in love with the king's daughter temine and married her but he was of a roving adventurous disposition and soon went back to fight among his own people the persians while he was gone his son sorab was born grew to manhood and became the hero of the turan army war arose between the two peoples and two hostile armies were encamped by the oxus each army chose a champion and rustum and sorab found themselves matched in mortal combat between the lines at this point sorab whose chief interest in life was to find his father demanded to know if his enemy were not rustum but the latter was disguised and denied his identity on the first day of the fight rustum was overcome but his life was spared by a trick and by the generosity of sorab on the second day rustum prevailed and mortally wounded his antagonist then he recognized his own son by a gold bracelet which he had long ago given to his wife temine the two armies rushing into battle were stopped by the sight of father and son weeping in each other's arms sorab died the war ceased and rustum went home to a life of sorrow and remorse using this interesting material arnold produced a poem which has the rare 
and difficult combination of classic reserve and romantic feeling it is written in blank verse and one has only to read the first few lines to see that the poet is not a master of his instrument the lines are seldom harmonious and we must frequently change the accent of common words or lay stress on unimportant particles to show the rhythm arnold frequently copies milton especially in his repetition of ideas and phrases but the poem as a whole is lacking in milton's wonderful melody the classic influence on sorab and rustum is especially noticeable in arnold's use of materials fights are short grief is long therefore the poet gives few lines to the combat but lingers over the son's joy at finding his father and the father's quenchless sorrow at the death of his son the last lines especially with their passionate grief set to solemn music makes this poem one of the best on the whole that arnold has written and the exquisite ending where the oxus unmindful of the trivial strifes of men flows on sedately to join his luminous home of waters is most suggestive of the poet's conception of the orderly life of nature in contrast with the doubt and restlessness of human life miscellaneous poems next in importance to the narrative poems are the elegies thyrsus the scholar gypsy memorial verses a southern night obermann stanzas from the grand chartreuse and rugby chapel all these are worthy of careful reading but the best is thyrsus a lament for the poet Clough, which is sometimes classed with milton's lycidas and shelley's adonais among the minor poems the reader will find the best expression of arnold's ideals and methods in dover beach the love lyrics entitled switzerland requiescat shakespeare the future kensington gardens philomela human life calicle's song morality and geist's grave the last being an exquisite tribute to a little dog which like all his kind had repaid our scant crumbs of affection with a whole life's devotion essays in criticism the first place among arnold's prose works must be given to the essays in criticism which raised the author to the front rank of living critics his fundamental idea of criticism appeals to us strongly the business of criticism he says is neither to find fault nor to display the critic's own learning or influence it is to know the best which has been thought and said in the world and by using this knowledge to create a current of fresh and free thought if a choice must be made among these essays which are all worthy of study we would suggest the study of poetry wordsworth byron and emerson the last-named essay which is found in the discourses in america is hardly a satisfactory estimate of emerson but its singular charm of manner and its atmosphere of intellectual culture make it perhaps the most characteristic of arnold's prose writings among the works of arnold's practical period there are two which may be taken as typical of all the rest 
literature and dogma eighteen seventy three is in general a plea for liberality in religion arnold would have us read the bible for instance as we would read any other great work and apply to it the ordinary standards of literary criticism culture and anarchy culture and anarchy eighteen sixty nine contains most of the terms culture sweetness and light barbarian philistine hebraism and many others which are now associated with arnold's work and influence the term barbarian refers to the aristocratic classes whom arnold thought to be essentially crude in soul notwithstanding their good clothes and superficial graces philistine refers to the middle classes narrow-minded and self-satisfied people according to arnold whom he satirizes with the idea of opening their minds to new ideas hebraism is arnold's term for moral education carlyle had emphasized the hebraic or moral element in life and arnold undertook to preach the hellenic or intellectual element which welcomes new ideas and delights in the arts that reflect the beauty of the world the uppermost idea with hellenism he says is to see things as they are the uppermost idea with hebraism is conduct and obedience with great clearness sometimes with great force and always with a play of humor and raillery aimed at the philistines arnold pleads for both these elements in life which together aim at culture that is at moral and intellectual perfection general characteristics arnold's influence in our literature may be summed up in a word as intellectual rather than inspirational one cannot be enthusiastic over his poetry for the simple reason that he himself lacked enthusiasm he is however a true reflection of a very real mood of the past century the mood of doubt and sorrow and a future generation may give him a higher place than he now holds as a poet though marked by the elemental note of sadness all arnold's poems are distinguished by clearness simplicity and the restrained emotion of his classic models as a prose writer the cold intellectual quality which mars his poetry by restraining romantic feeling is of first importance since it leads him to approach literature with an open mind and with the single desire to find the best which has been thought and said in the world we cannot yet speak with confidence of his rank in literature but by his crystal clear style his scientific spirit of inquiry and comparison illumined here and there by the play of humor and especially by his broad sympathy and intellectual culture he seems destined to occupy a very high place among the masters of literary criticism End of section sixty two